and welcome to our Spotlight podcast on gene and cell therapies. I am Naima Wondrell, Senior Editor of Bioanalysis Zone, and I am joined today by Hugh Davis, Chief Business Officer at Frontage Laboratories. So to start with, Hugh, could you introduce yourself and explain your interest in gene therapy? I'm Hugh Davis, and I have a long history, 30-something years in pharmaceutical and biotech industry, 10 years in the discovery area mostly in small molecule development, and also biomarker research. 20 years with biologic development and early development, mostly with SmithKline and Johnson & Johnson with Janssen. And then within the last year, joined Frontage, where we get to work with companies of all sizes, with all the different types of platforms and portfolios. So it's very interesting. And now, of course, cell and gene therapy has really become huge in the last two to three years, and Frontage is lucky enough to be able to work on a lot of interesting projects with really innovative companies. So that's sort of my background and interest in gene therapy is really about what the future beholds and the real opportunity for gene therapy to be curative rather than just amelioration of signs and symptoms. So really exciting time to be in this area. Great. Thank you, Hugh. And how has the bioanalytical laboratory kept up with the complexity of oligonucleotide-based and gene therapies? I wrote a commentary in Bioanalysis Zone recently and briefly talked about some of the bioanalytical approaches that are being taken. And, you know, obviously qPCR was really key to high sensitivity. The issue for that, of course, is lack of specificity. What we've seen in development over these last number of years is a hybridization ELISA. And so we're getting around some of these issues by using a couple of different approaches in hybridization ELISA. So we're actually at Frontage putting together an MSD-based platform that can also be used. And so you get sensitivity really that's probably in the picogram per milliliter range. Unfortunately, it's still not as specific as we'd like it to be. And that's where LC mass spec mass spec has become huge because there you really get the specificity, especially with the dual mass spec approach. Precision and accuracy are amazing. Reproducibility is excellent. But there, you know, we've seen over the years that LCMSMS hasn't been applied, for instance, in protein biotherapeutics because there's a lack of sensitivity that's needed, especially in clinical development programs, not so much in the tox program, but in early development. And then we move into the high-resolution LCMS. It's really come up in recent couple of years. And there, again, not only do we get the specificity, but we also get metabolite information, which is really key to being able to understand whether these oligos are being degraded and whether they really have the opportunity to reach their site of action with full activity. And then LCUV is another approach that's been taken over the years. I say years. It's only been a couple of years. And there we really have a broad dynamic range, which has been quite good in being able to really be able to measure concentration across a broad range, and the specificity is quite good. And so we really have, as you said, a plethora of analytical approaches that we're taking, and the instrument industry has really stepped up, and that's really the key to having this improved sensitivity and specificity that's being applied now, not just to small molecule biology and, and clinical programs, but also to, you know, oligos and even larger oligos, 25, you know, MERS and things of that sort. So an exciting time, and I think we'll see continued advancement in instrument technology over these coming years. 
Great. And what are the challenges in the design of a clinical development programme? And how do CROs such as Frontage consult with companies to help them to get more efficient answers? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you think about clinical development programmes, even if you're thinking about a small molecule or a peptide or a biologic, really you have the same goals in the clinical development program. And so understanding the PK of the molecule, you have your animal testing, you know the PK in different species, but then when you move into the clinic, you're always wondering how that's going to translate in a human. And stability is really key, especially in the oligonucleotide area, gene therapy area, because nuclease digestion is obviously one of major concerns. And so stability, not only in the product itself and maintaining shelf life, but also as you move in vivo, is really paramount. And so there have been a number of approaches taken by companies over the years to make these oligos be more refractory to nuclease activity. And then, of course, safety is paramount. You know, as you move into the clinical development in phase one and two, understanding the safety. And and there, you know, I can speak to this a little bit more later perhaps, but in oligonucleotide-based therapies like RNAi and things of this sort, it's not quite a concern because it's based on the administration and the dosing interval, and you can feather in that PKPD appropriately. When you start moving into something like gene therapy, now you're getting into something that's longer term and the duration of response is going to be a concern and the extent of the response. And then, of course, the specificity. You know, if your gene is inserted improperly, gets in front of a promoter that gets activated in the wrong setting, there's going to be some downstream safety concerns. So as you're setting up your program, you really have to understand what the non-clinical studies are providing you as you move toward the clinic. And we've seen, for instance, in cancer therapy with bispecific antibodies, you know, they don't look very toxic in normal, healthy primates. But then when you start having disease burden, now you start to see some safety issues crop up. Hyperactive T cells where you're having potential anaphylaxis and, and even death uh, can occur. So when disease is present and on board within a patient population, you really can't predict that as well as you move from the preclinical setting. So your PKPD is good and activity is is obviously important, but then you have to move into a setting where uh, you're really looking at long-term safety and the benefit-to-risk profile. So when we're working with companies to help them in the clinical development program, it's really interesting because the question we always ask early on, if you have a startup, you know, what's the exit strategy? Is, Is it to get into clinical proof of concept Or is it to move through and take this on all the way through the phase three program and get the approval? Because if that's the goal, you're going to take forward a more involved and really intensive clinical development plan than if you're trying to get to an earlier stage milestone. So the key when working together with a CRO, for instance, and and a farmer biotech company is really to understand the goal. And even if you're not working with the CRO and outsourcing your work, that's still the goal within the company because frequently you want to partner your asset and do some risk sharing. Even if you're a large multinational pharma company, you still like to share the risk and take those programs forward in different ways and different settings. So if it's a fast-to-market strategy or an invest-to-proof-of-concept strategy, you're going to have a different clinical development plan. And it's really good to put that blueprint in place 
uh, right up front. Compared to small molecule and biologics research, what is the time frame for bringing an oligonucleotide-based therapy to market? It's interesting. So an oligo-based therapy is a bit akin to sort of a small molecule or a peptide type of program where, again, you know, for the most part, you have an antagonist, you're inhibiting transcription or translation, and you're ultimately, you know, it's a function of PKPD within the dosing interval. And so you can feather in the extent of that activity that you want to ameliorate. And so, you know, in small molecule land, uh, you're thinking about solubility, oral bioavailability, accessibility to the target, protein binding, of course, intracellular target binding and the extent of that binding and the duration of that, and off-target toxicities, right? So in a small molecule program, you know, you have many preclinical factors that you need to work through. By the time you move into the clinical setting, you're hopefully now working more toward a safety and efficacy perspective, but you've spent a lot of time in that uh, preclinical space, really optimizing your molecule. And there are many of those, uh, many issues that come to bear. And, you know, as I said, I worked in large molecule for 20 years and I don't realize how easy I had it because literally, you know, there are extracellular targets for the most part. It's an IV or a sub-Q administration. So you get virtually 100% bioavailability. You have a long half-life acting uh, molecule. So it might be two or three weeks. And so you really are interested more in the PKPD early on, and it's a function of whether you're showing efficacy in the disease setting. When you go to the oligonucleotide-based therapies now, it's interesting because they also, you know, oligonucleotide synthesis happened in the 70s, just like antibody development with Kohler and Milstein in the 70s. But antibodies, you know, have been now proven in the clinic. I don't know how many approved antibodies we have. must be 20 or 30 by now. And so that had a 20-year life cycle. The oligonucleotide-based therapies have had a much longer time to get into the clinic, and now we're finally starting to see some approvals. And the issues were more around uh, nuclease degradation and how you really develop molecules that not only would be resistant to degradation, but you're really asking the oligo to do a lot of work because it has to get past the nuclease situation, and then it has to get into the cell. And then once it's in the cell, it needs to bind specifically to the target, uh, whether it be DNA or RNA. And you're asking it to do so many challenging aspects that it's been a lot longer getting us to this stage. Now, having said all that, I think that as we think about the types of platforms that have been taken, if you're looking at you know different siRNAs, GAPMERS, an interesting approach to helping with degradation. And then we have all of the microRNAs and, uh, you know, talking with Sarepta and other companies with the exon skipping, for instance, in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. There are so many different approaches, aptamers, for instance, conformational approaches to inhibiting transcription or translation. Each of these programs have their uniqueness, but they're all antagonistic in a way that is based on PKPD and delivering these molecules to the site of action. So now that we have more efficient delivery mechanisms and we have better product opportunities and different types of platforms that are being used, I see that we're now sort of at an inflection point. And so those long 
development times that you would see with logos in the past, I think have shortened considerably in recent years. And I think we're going to see it on the same path now as a small molecule or a peptide development program. And uh, really looking forward to seeing this area really uh, take off now in, in these next coming years. Great. And what bioanalytical considerations should be taken into account when developing bioanalytical assays to address downstream goals, such as determining the safety index, the therapeutic window, the maximum recommended starting dose, and potential toxicities? The bioanalytical challenges are huge, right? Because it's always the same when it comes to bioanalytical, and it really doesn't matter what platform we're talking about. It's really about accuracy and precision. It's about robustness of the assays. You know, when you have a development program that might go on for 10 years, and then you have a product that you're going to take across multiple indications, that may go on. The post-marketing program may go on for another 10 years. And so your assays need to be robust. They need to, to have consistency over time. And really, it's about accuracy and precision in order to be able to deliver those outcomes that the clinical pharmacologist and the clinical program is looking for from these data. And that is always the same. You pointed out, you know, the safety index and the therapeutic window. What is the minimum dose that's going to drive therapeutic effect? And ultimately, where are we starting to see toxicities? So when we can define that therapeutic window, then we're in a much better place. And again, for the oligonucleotide-based therapies, because they're primarily antagonistic, and are a function of PKPD, we can actually put together a program preclinically as long as we have good animal models of disease. And this is the crux of concern across many therapeutic areas. In oncology, we've cured probably hundreds of thousands of mice of xenografts that we've induced in mice, and yet we take them into the clinic and those same agents don't have any effect on native tumors in a human. And I think the same setting is in place here animal models of disease, how do we know how in a non-diseased animal, in a setting where we're developing a disease, how do we know that that's going to translate well into the clinic? And as we move more toward gene therapy, I think then we're also talking about how do we really understand the extent of that duration of response? And so is that gene going to be in place for many cell life turnover time, or is it going to be something that's going to be only transient? Hard to understand whether that's going to be the case. So animal models, I think, are really where there's more development to do. I think in the bioanalytical methods that I elucidated earlier, I think we're going to see better sensitivity across mass spec, and that will be huge for the industry in general. It'll also be able to be applied to biologics as well, and I think that would be a real upside for the industry. But in the case of actually developing new analytical methods, I think we're doing well with the hybridization techniques. I think we're finding ways that we can enhance the amplitude within those assays to enhance our sensitivity. But really, specificity is also a key for oligonucleotides and certainly for gene therapy. And finally, Hugh, with gene therapies providing a potential cure rather than attenuation of symptoms. Where do you hope this field will be in five to 10 years time? The interesting data that we've seen, we've had a couple of products now in these last couple of years, 
using gene therapy, but it's still ex vivo somatic cell type of gene therapy. And so, you know, CAR T's, of course, in cancer, where T cells have a chimeric antigen receptor placed into the T cell, making it more active against the tumor. We've seen approvals there, a couple of uh, recent approvals. And if you look at enzyme deficiencies and metabolic disease settings, especially in monogenic situations, there we're looking at hematopoietic and pluripotent stem cells. Uh, so again, ex vivo placing of genes that uh, reinfuse back into patients. And so we're not really seeing in vivo or in situ gene therapy yet. And I think, you know, the issues are still more work to be done. We need to make sure that where that gene gets placed, and of course, CRISPR-Cas technology has really revolutionized the field in just the last two years. And so I'm sure this is going to also have an inflection in the very near future. But the precision at which guide our RNA and where we see these genes being placed, you know, whether we're doing it in muscle cells or the like, we need to make sure that we have precision and we're not turning on some other downstream sequence and expression that's going to cause safety concerns that you're not going to be able to turn off. And so, you know, that's the concern in the industry. I think we're moving in that direction at a real fast pace. And ultimately, I don't think we're going to get into germline gene therapeutic approaches. I think there's too many morality and and, um, ethical concerns there about how we're altering life early. But I do think that that's the best way to go, only because that's where you're going to get total cures and we're going to affect future populations. Of course, that's part of the problem is you could potentially affect future populations. We don't know what those gene therapies are going to bring in terms of safety concern. One of the um, areas that we always were concerned about with antibody therapy, we had a number of products put out in the market when I was with Janssen. One of our concerns was always, when was somebody going to have a gene for one of our antibodies, our therapeutic products, that they would put place the gene into a muscle cell and that a patient would generate its own anti-TNF antibody then for months or years to come. And it literally could put all of these monoclonal antibodies being sort of the way of the dinosaur. And so we're always concerned about that. I think that's still a real upside potential because it would help with huge economic advantage. Our cost of goods obviously would go so low and uh, it would really help society in total. So I actually see that as one area that has some real opportunity that hasn't been exploited yet, and that is using gene therapy to produce monoclonal antibody therapies within the body in a consistent way over a long period of time for these patients. So that's uh, sort of my novice approach uh, in thinking about where gene therapy could go. I don't have a long history in this field, obviously, but some of the hopes that I think and some of the opportunities I think that are coming along. Thank you, Hugh, for joining me today and thank you to our listeners. You can find more resources on gene and cell therapies at www.bioanalysis-zone.com or join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn.